Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. It feels like it's been all bad news when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic of late, but this past week brought some good news, as Pfizer, in conjunction with a German company, announced promising results for their candidate vaccine in early testing. By one announced measure, compared to a placebo, the candidate vaccine achieved a 90% protection rate. What's more, Pfizer announced that it has the capability to produce the vaccine on a large scale. Following on this good news, former Harvard Medical School Dean Jeffrey Flyer wrote an article for Quillette entitled, It's Still Early Days, But Pfizer's Stunning Vaccine Results Could Be a Real Game Changer. Following the publication of his article, Dr. Flyer spoke to me for the Quillette podcast. Here are excerpts from our conversation. There are all sorts of viruses, and some stubbornly resist vaccine treatment for decades, HIV being an example of a virus that we still don't have a vaccine for, despite intensive research. On the other hand, you then get extremely deadly viruses, such as smallpox, that even with comparatively primitive technology, they were able to get vaccine treatments, measles being another example. Do researchers know in advance whether a virus is going to be challenging to develop a vaccine for, or is it simply a matter of empirical research? It's a good question. So I am not a vaccine scientist by my own special career involvement. But what I could say is that there is some element of predictability when a virus is in a certain class for which successful vaccines have previously been created creates optimism and you can follow a path that has been used before. When you have a virus that is relatively or completely new, there may be less of a historical basis for making a judgment. On the other hand, there can be reasons for optimism based on the structure of the virus, the nature of the proteins that you might want to engage for a vaccine. So it's a mixture of historical guidance and just playing it out in the real world. In the case of COVID-19, from what I understand, to the extent we did have some historical precursors, they inspired pessimism because of SARS and MERS. Is that the case? Yeah, that's the case. I wouldn't say it was extreme pessimism because those two viruses both had relatively short and limited exposures and creation of illness. So the effort wasn't anything like what the effort has been with respect to COVID-19. Those diseases, in one case, pretty well disappeared. In the other case, is very much minimal in its prevalence in the community. So the effort to develop a vaccine in each case kind of got cut short. Sometimes in the discussion of finding a vaccine, there's a lot of discussions of proteins. And I have to admit, this is a little bit obscure to me. I know that in the case of viruses, there's actually a real discussion about whether viruses are a life form because they don't generate their own energy. Can you tell me a little bit in terms that an informed layperson would understand what the role of targeting proteins is when you're looking at vaccines? A virus is an entity that cannot live without a host organism that allows it to propagate. 
the genetic material that viruses have is either DNA or RNA, and they come in many different flavors and organizations. But in the end, what the virus is, is a structure that contains the DNA or the RNA, and it has a membrane, and it has some proteins both inside that relate to the virus structure, and it also has proteins on the outside that mediate or permit the virus to get into the cells of a host. That's a critical first step for any virus, getting into a living cell in another organism in which it can propagate and potentially cause disease. So the proteins are the actual workhorses of the actions of the virus, and the DNA and the RNA is the genetic material that allows the creation of additional copies. So it turns out that the proteins are the molecules to which the immune system is activated. Like a lot of journalists, I've tried to educate myself about the science of viruses. And when you look at the approach that scientists take to blocking the propagation and infectious roots of viruses, often you'll see these, they look like flowcharts where they're showing the life cycle such as it is and the propagation methods of the virus. There's often many different points that theoretically you could block the transmission. Because if you block one point in the transmission chain, you can essentially block the entire chain. Yes. From what I understand, though, when it comes to researching vaccine candidates for COVID-19, there has been a very specific focus on what's known as the spike protein. Can you tell me a little bit about why researchers focus so closely on that and why perhaps it's a promising avenue of approach? Basically, if you look under the electron microscope at a coronavirus, including the one that causes COVID-19, you see sort of a round structure, lots of little spikes coming off, which are the proteins that are made of several different molecules of protein that form the bridge between the virus and a receptor on various host cells. Just to make it specific, we're talking about the nose or the mouth or that area of a human host, right? Yes, it's the part of a cell in your nose, let's say, that the virus attaches to and then through a series of mechanisms then mediates the internalization of the virus into the cell in your nose or whatever other organ is being infected. It has been known from previous studies of other COVID viruses that these spikes are, in fact, the molecules that attach to your cells to allow the virus to get inside. So it was quite obvious, if you're thinking about how to develop an immune response, to go after that protein. Having said that, as a scientist looking at the protein, you look at it and you say, okay, is there a particular part of the protein that would be more effective at making an immune response? Is it the whole protein? Is it several different parts of the protein? And that is exactly what happened so rapidly after the virus's genetic sequence was made public in January. Literally hundreds of laboratories around the world looked at the structure that they could deduce from the genetic sequence of this spike protein. And they started testing dozens or hundreds even of different variants to see if they would, in experimental animals, produce 
antibodies that would block the binding of the virus to the cell. The science of virology and of vaccine production is so complicated that for lay people, and it sounds like even for some medical professionals, the most accessible way to talk about it is by metaphor. Is it accurate to say that the science of vaccine production is aimed at essentially educating the immune system, putting up a wanted poster saying, this is an enemy you should know this, you should identify it. And when you see this kind of protein, treat it as a pathogen. Yeah, that gets a good piece of it. I would say we have immune systems that are very complicated entities to protect us from all kinds of external threats. This has different components to it. One is an antibody-based component, and then there's a very complicated cellular-based component. The key part of it is to recognize these invading agents and develop attacks against them, all while not attacking your own body, which sometimes happens in a whole variety of human diseases where the immune system goes out of control and begins to attack your normal tissues. Those are autoimmune conditions. The immune system is genetically programmed to recognize a number of these external threats. And that's true as well for coronaviruses and other viruses. What the vaccination is designed to do is to both elicit, without having to be infected first, the immune response so that if you then are exposed, you already have some preformed immune components that will block the infection or limit it. And then there's also a more delayed down the line effect of immunization. And this varies with different agents. You can be immunized for some viruses and 40 years later, you're still protected because you can rapidly redevelop the immune system having been given the vaccine at an early age. In other cases, the duration of the protection is limited for various reasons. You may then need to have boosters. You may also need to have different vaccines because the virus has changed in the interim. So that's why it's so complicated. As a health sciences layperson, one of the things I found so fascinating about studying virology in the context of COVID-19 is the sophisticated database and information retrieval functions that your immune system has to manage. When presented with a pathogen, the immune system at first responds with a generic antigen response, and then several days or several weeks later comes back with a customized response. The process of vaccine development, is it essentially accelerating that customized response on the molecular level? That's a reasonable way to put it, yes. The customized response to that particular agent in most cases will occur. Some people may have a better ability to do it than others for reasons that we still don't understand. But you can accelerate the process and make it more robust by vaccinating than just simply waiting to see what happens if you come in contact with the virus. And now, a brief shout out for another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which you can find at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You've heard me talk about Jordan's podcast before, and you know that Apple named it one of its best podcasts in 2018. But if you haven't given it a listen, let me just tick off some of the guests this guy has managed to get. Bob Saget, Malcolm Gladwell, Dennis Rodman, Mark Cuban, and the late Kobe Bryant. And if you tune in regularly, you'll know that this isn't just a parade of famous people. Jordan also finds folks you've never heard of, who just happen to have fascinating stories. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, 
I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. And now, back to our Quillette podcast. I have read journalistic accounts of doctors saying that, in some cases, it is your body's response to COVID-19, which is hurting the lungs, in some cases, more than the actual disease. Is that the case? And how would that affect the way we would approach a COVID-19 vaccine? Well, there's several different questions in the question that you just asked. In the response to a pathogen like a virus, like this virus, part of the response involves various kinds of mediators, cytokines as they're called, and others that help the body fight off the infection. They may help damage infected cells so that they can't be further propagating the disease. And as much as such parts of the inflammatory and immune response may be helpful and are helpful, just like everything else in medicine, it's a balance. It's a trade-off between different elements of the response. And some people may develop an exaggerated inflammatory response, and that itself can be what is driving the various symptoms and signs of the disease. There were many thoughts about this very early in the pandemic when people were very sick, very fast, with lots of inflammation. The people who are the sickest may have the highest levels of some of these inflammatory mediators. And my impression is, although there's so many trials going on, it's hard to keep track of all of them up to the second, is that most of those trials of blockers of cytokines, which are used to treat other autoimmune diseases that have nothing to do with COVID, those have not really worked out in controlled trials to be successful. One of the therapies that has now been shown in controlled trials to be effective in certain phases of COVID-19 disease is dexamethasone, which is a particular version of a steroid, glucocorticoid steroid molecule that is widely used in medicine for a whole variety of different anti-inflammatory purposes. It shows a benefit in patients at certain phases of COVID-19, presumably by diminishing some of the inflammatory excesses that may occur. Not every piece of that has been figured out, but that it does cause a benefit is clear now. I have some familiarity with dexamethasone because my daughter at a very young age had a subglottal hemangioma, which constricted her air passage, and it was treated for six months with dexamethasone. But of course, it had all kinds of side effects. I know that in the case of the Pfizer preliminary results, the data monitoring committee reported that they could find in the limited data pool they had, they could find no important side effects. Does that surprise you or is it inevitable that there's going to be at least some side effects for a minority of the population? It would be unusual if there were zero side effects. You know, when you are developing a vaccine for a virus, you are balancing the benefit of the vaccine against any possible side effects. The more dangerous the disease, the more medical people and regulators would accept some amount of side effects because the balance is a trade-off. The worse the side effects, the more you worry about how they stack up against the benefits of the vaccine. In this case, there's, of course, a huge interest in having a successful vaccine for all of the reasons that are obvious to us in terms of the consequences of the disease for those who get it and the economic consequences and social consequences of trying to abrogate the infection. The idea that there would be no side effects is de minimis. What people are worried about are significant side effects as opposed to 
having the vaccine administered and feeling some pain in your arm or having a little bit of a fever for a day or feeling, you know, unwell. Those are kind of expected because you're actually stimulating the immune system with the vaccine. I just recently had a flu vaccine and I had some symptoms for a day. The concern is in the early development of a vaccine, you have to rule out that something bad is going to happen in a lot of the people who get it. And that's why you do phase one and phase two studies on a limited number of patients to say, look, there will not commonly be a problem of X, Y, or Z that would limit our ability to develop this. I think even lay people vaguely know at least that there are live culture vaccines and non-live culture vaccines where in some cases when you're getting vaccinated against a pathogen, you're actually, it's paradoxical, but you're actually getting that pathogen or at least trace amounts of it directly injected into you. Could you describe a little bit the distinction between live and non-live vaccines? Basically, the difference between live and non-live vaccines is Live vaccines are some version of the virus that has been modified through one means or another to be less harmful or not harmful at all, ideally, but yet able to produce the immune response that is able to stimulate protection, but not any significant disease. This is distinguished from vaccines that are utilizing some component of the virus through many different mechanisms or vectors or approaches that cause the body to make that part of the virus to which the immune system then reacts. But it cannot cause the disease itself in any way because it's not a fully functional virus. It's just the the protein that you're trying to counteract. Will the COVID-19 vaccines, if any are developed, will they be live? I am not aware of any of the advanced vaccines that are live. There are many that are administered with what's called a viral vector, what is ideally a harmful virus into which has been inserted one or more proteins or parts of proteins from the COVID-19 so that when this virus that is injected gets taken up by cells, the cell will then produce the COVID-19 piece that generates the immune response. So that is in development now. For example, the just to mention the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a viral vector that has within it a piece of the COVID-19 spike protein. Why do some candidate vaccines have to be refrigerated to minus, I think it's minus 70 Fahrenheit, and some can stay at room temperature? It's all a matter of the stability of the active ingredients of the vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine that is based on a messenger RNA structure appears to be unstable at room temperature or even traditional refrigeration, except for a very limited amount of time. That is just a uh, undesirable property of that particular vaccine chemistry that requires, until they find a way around it, that there be a very cold chain security. Because, of course, what you wouldn't want to have is lots of vaccines made for a period of time. It's not as cold as it needs to be, and then the vaccine just won't work. You mentioned messenger RNA. Can you tell us about that? Without getting too much into a lesson on molecular biology, everyone knows or should know that DNA is the double-stranded molecule that encodes the proteins that are the workhorses of cells in biology. 
the way that DNA ultimately ends up in all the proteins that we have in our body is through the intermediation of a molecule called messenger RNA. It's a type of molecule, single chain rather than the double chain of DNA. And that messenger RNA goes from the nucleus where it's made from the DNA into the cytoplasm. And there, very complicated mechanisms, biochemical mechanisms, lead to the production of the proteins that are encoded by each mRNA. And the excitement about the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine is that they are taking advantage of some newly discovered modifications of mRNA that makes it more stable than it would otherwise be. And they have techniques for delivering the mRNA into cells in the body, at which point the mRNA instructs whatever cell it's in to produce whatever protein it encodes. So it's a different strategy that is involved, but it involves the same sequence of DNA, mRNA, protein, that the centerpiece of our understanding of how the cells work. You mentioned in your article that regardless of the outcome in regard to Pfizer's vaccine, the mere fact that we have these at least preliminary results that seems successful for their vaccine, that that should give us optimism, not just for Pfizer's candidate vaccine, but for other projects as well. Could you explain that? I think one of the reasons for excitement from the preliminary results presented about the Pfizer vaccine is that we know that I believe all of the existing vaccines under development are different approaches to blocking the same spike protein in somewhat different ways, in somewhat different methodologies, but they're all aimed at inhibiting that protein. Since there is success, or what looks to be very early success with this particular vaccine, it means we can be much more confident that the other vaccines developed by other companies, different methodologies, will be successful. They may be differentially successful. They may have different durations of action. They may have different side effects. This can only be figured out by the appropriate studies. One reason this is of interest is that, as far as we could tell, with the goal of immunizing close to everybody on Earth, one single company is not a likely way to accomplish that in any reasonable time frame. So nearly the certainty will be that there will have to be multiple companies developing vaccines and based on everything that we know now, be slightly different vaccines in terms of how they are structured, how they are administered and what their consequences will be. But in the end, there will be many different vaccines out there produced by different companies. And now, a commercial message for those of you looking to add Bitcoin to your investment portfolio or retirement account. And I realize that this is a confusing subject. I remember the first time I got Bitcoin. I walked into a convenience store that had the Bitcoin logo, went up to a kind of reverse ATM, fed in some bills, and received, in return, a long series of numbers and letters. Then I spent an hour trying to figure out how to feed those numbers and letters into a Bitcoin wallet on my phone. I wanted to invest in cryptocurrencies, but surely there had to be a better way. And that's what brings me to BitTrust IRA, a seamless, secure, and easy way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. BitTrust IRA stores your private keys with military-grade encryption. They have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investment and unlimited trades. They also offer what I'm told are the lowest trading fees in the industry. 
Many crypto assets have been great performers this year, and some analysts will tell you they're a great way to start building intergenerational wealth. For those looking to invest, skip the convenience store and go to bittrustira.com slash quillette to learn more. For a limited time, Bittrust IRA is waiving the sign-up fee for Quillette podcast listeners, a $50 value. Go to bittrustira.com slash quillette, B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. And now, back to our podcast. The effort to find a vaccine is, of course, an international project. And I have read that the Russians are claiming that their own so-called Sputnik vaccine is effective. How much trust do you place in reports like that? It's a little bit hard to judge the effectiveness and safety of vaccines that are being produced by countries like Russia that we don't have a very good understanding or transparency of the science behind what they're doing or the approach to testing or the data that's being generated. There's no reason Russia might not develop a successful and safe vaccine, but I wouldn't be betting my health on those vaccines at the moment. One of the challenges we're facing has nothing to do with technology, but has to do with popular attitudes. There is a question about whether some people in our societies will even agree to take the vaccine, even if it's shown to be safe and effective by scientists. How much of a challenge is this as we contemplate the public health campaign that will come if indeed we do have an effective vaccine? So let me first make a comment about what is often referred to as vaccine hesitancy. It seems in the modern world today, varies in different countries, there are groups of people who have decided largely against or entirely against evidence that vaccines are just dangerous, they cause more harm than good, that people are covering up the dangers. And this kind of anti-vaxxer movement has been existing in the background, and it even involves resistance to taking well-known important vaccines like measles, for example. That's the background, okay? Then you add, in this case, the political interference in the scientific discussion where you have our president repeatedly making statements that challenge the scientific consensus, realizing that the consensus is not necessarily the truth, but the president has done so in a way that makes him seem to be very ignorant frequently and anti-science. And the consequence is there's a group of people, especially those who are his supporters, who become more skeptical about what it is that scientists say. At the same time, when the president pushes so strongly for a vaccine and says it will be available right around the corner and it'll be approved before the election, that makes other people concerned that, well, maybe this vaccine will be prematurely put out there before we know that it is safe and effective. So you have a swirling cross current of people who are influenced by the politics, they're influenced by general anti-vax science, and it has made this something other than a simple, straightforward scientific conversation between our Center for Disease Control and FDA on the one hand, and the population that wishes to be protected on the other. And then you have some additional issues that, of course, flow from the fact that when there is an available vaccine, it won't be in sufficient amount to immunize everyone who might want it. And then you'll get into very complex 
ethically charged issues of who should be able to get it first. General consensus being that healthcare workers who are on the front lines, who are needed to manage the disease, they should be amongst the earliest, if not the earliest, to get it. Then other people with very high risk profiles like elderly individuals, especially those in congregant living circumstances who have disproportionately suffered from this disease, they should get it as well as the staff and workers who take care of them. And then there are people with other predisposing conditions. Many of them are common diseases in the societies that we live in, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease. And then you get the further complexity that minority communities, poor individuals are more likely to get the disease and are more likely to die from the disease or have severe outcomes. So how do you try to get the vaccine early to those individuals? I would say this hasn't been yet solved. It's not likely to come from a single declaration by the federal government. It's gonna play out through many local regional efforts the role of health systems in deciding how they will distribute the vaccines that they'll be uh, uh, giving out. I think we really don't know all the details of that, but we can predict that it will be complicated. Do you think this unprecedented international collaboration in search of a vaccine, in search of a way to stop COVID-19 more generally, do you think it's going to have spillover effects to other areas of public health? You know, I think we all are looking for some good outcomes from this terrible situation that we've suffered from on a global level. And one of the things that I have seen, I've seen it internationally and I've seen it locally in the Harvard medical system that I reside in, is that the pandemic has brought about certain kinds of collaborative science that were much more difficult to see and effectuate before. I think many of us are realizing that for certain kinds of important pressing medical problems, collaborations between laboratories, between institutions, between companies, between nations will be important, but they won't necessarily all occur just by themselves. Some will, but some will require special levels of interaction and changing of regulations that will promote such an outcome in the future. And this is not going to be the last pandemic, hardly so. In fact, the next one could be far more dangerous if the virus that starts spreading around has a higher lethality. Unlike this one, perhaps the next one will affect children disproportionately. These are things that are very hard to think about, but we better be thinking about them. And we have to prepare a public health and a scientific infrastructure for these kinds of outcomes in a very interconnected world where they can spread very rapidly. Dr. Jeffrey Flyer of Harvard Medical School, thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Okay, thank you very much, John. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.